welcome to the Home Builders Are Doing Great episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Hi. Uh, along with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And Emily, you have been spelunking in economic data. That's me, just traveling around in the economic data. Wee. <laughs> <laughs> The, the water's lovely. Come on in. We are going to be looking at what's happening to new home sales. It is quite surprising. We are going to look at what's happening to the proportion of Americans with disabilities who are working. That is also quite surprising. We are going to talk about the political donations of Sam Bankman-Fried, which looked like they were highly illegal. We are in the Slate Plus segment going to have our other shoe drop on the world bank side of things um and talk about ajay banga who's going to be the new president of the world bank and why he was nominated we have a fun numbers round with all manner of questions for you about things like gold and platinum so it's all coming up on slate money when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, so Emily, let's start with a really interesting little bifurcation in the housing market that you have alighted upon, which, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it basically new houses and new home sales are doing much better than existing home sales. Yeah, that's right, Felix. I was just looking at this data before we started recording, and on Friday, the census reported on sales of new homes. This is new construction. No one's ever lived in the house before. And sales are up, basically. They were up about 7% in January. They're still pretty low. You know, mortgage rates are really high right now. So most people aren't buying houses at all. But the new home market, Felix, is doing better than the existing home market. Sales are up of new homes. Yeah. And we can see this in the stock market with the home builders. All of America's big home builders are doing really well on the stock yeah. market, which is not something you would expect right now. They're all at like 52-week highs. Um, and so the market doesn't just think, 
it's crap, but maybe a little bit better than the secondhand home market. They think they, they're seeing actual optimism here, both in the present and I assume in the future, since the stock market is, you know, a way of anticipating how things are going to be in the future. Yeah. And um, I'll answer the question. Why? Why is this? It's because um, builders, people selling new homes cut mortgage rates for buyers. So they do this thing called a mortgage buy down. So if you buy a new home, you can get a mortgage rate as low as 4.25% right now because of these these things called buy downs. Whereas if you had to buy an existing home, it's more like you pay regular mortgage rate, which is right now a little bit over 6%, I think. So it's more appealing to get that lower rate. So new homes are more appealing, basically. So basically the, the new home builders they're not instead of just cutting the price of the home Mm -hmm. they're cutting the mortgage rate on the home which Mm -hmm. has a similar effect on the bottom line but definitely attracts more potential buyers because if you just cut the price the amount you have to pay every month in terms of mortgage is is still very high if you have a six point something percent mortgage if you cut the mortgage then the amount you have to pay every month in mortgage is much lower yeah, it's really striking. I, I ran a little chart on this last month. So like, let's say you have a $300,000 house, which we are not familiar with because we live in the New York metropolitan area, but let's say a $300,000 house. So, and you pay a 7% mortgage rate on that house. Your monthly payment is almost $2,000, right? But if you get a price cut of $8,000, say, then your monthly payment is like nineteen fifty. dollars whatever, $50, not a big deal. But if you get a rate buy down and the price of the house stays the same and the rate goes down to 5%, then your monthly payment is $1,600. Did we follow all that? It's a lot less per month. And you're saying that the cost of the vendor of of buying that rate buy down is, mm-hmm. or at least for just a couple of years, is only about $8,000, right? Mm-hmm. Like in terms of that's an equivalent price cut as far as the seller is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And builders have been doing this for, for a long time. Like they have a lot of experience doing these buy downs and stuff. So that's why it's happening more in the new home market because the home builders like know what they're doing, can do it, blah, blah, blah. Whereas like regular people selling their houses might not know to do it. Their broker might not know. It's, you know, it's just more weird. And it's, it's more difficult for them because it involves setting up a whole escrow account to pay effectively pay the extra mortgage amount every mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. It's it's like logistically a pain in the ass. Whereas, as you say, the the home builders have been set set up for years to be able to do these things, and and now they're just sitting there going, "We've been waiting all this time for like a market opportunity to let us just roll out this product that we've had in our back pocket all along, but we never really uh-huh. needed to." It was you know. Buying down mortgage rates was never something people particularly wanted when mortgage rates were two and a half percent. Right. But now people want it. And home builders like, you want a buy down? We got that. Yeah. And that's better for them because they don't want to lower home prices because if they're selling homes in like a big community or something, it just pisses people off if the prices of the homes currently being sold are much lower than the ones you paid for. Like everyone likes it when prices stay the same, right? This is like a sneaky way to do that. Even if the price has like an asterisk on it, it's still the it's still the the um, the price on on the record. As it yeah, were. and this is part of the reason. I mean, home prices like no one really wants to buy a house anymore because mortgage rates are so high. Um, so you'd think like home prices will kind of come crashing down, but they and they have been falling a little, but not really very much. And this is one of the reasons why. 
You also see lenders across the board offering these new incentives to offset the rate changes. So with, with the sort of real estate, I think the phrase in real estate is, you know, you convince people to marry the house and date the rate. Um, so <laughs> one, one incentive I think that's been uh, popular is that there, there are lenders who are offering uh, no-cost refinancing within 24 months, and that's still a gamble. Yeah. But if people think that rates are going to not continue to climb past a certain point, it makes you know buying something now more attractive. Yeah. Which, by the way, I only learned this by actually being offered a refinance. And the first time I was offered it, I said no, because I had no idea how expensive it is to refinance your house. It costs like, I think it, it cost me what, like $7,000 or something to refinance. And I was like, whoa. So that's actually, a, you know, a non-negligible um, free option there that, that the lenders are handing. Of course, that applies to existing homes as, as much as it does to new ones. Um, but yeah, I think people are definitely looking at mortgage rates, which are pretty high by recent historical standards and thinking to themselves, if I can manage some way of paying the mortgage for the next 18 months to two years, then with any luck, um, either the mortgage rate will come down or, you know, inflation will become entrenched. My wage, my the wage price spiral will spiral. I'll earn more money and I'll be able to make the mortgage payment that way. Yeah. The, I mean, the flip side of all this is home prices aren't coming down. They're up like, I don't know, what is it, 30, 40% from pre-pandemic. A lot of people can't afford houses. And for those people, they want these home prices to come down. So all this, it's not shenanigans, but all this, you know, maneuvering with rates and everything is keeping those prices high and keeping a lot of people that could have taken advantage of a slower market out of the market. Well, you know? I mean, the supply, the total number of homes isn't really changing that much. For all of these, for all the fact that these home builders are making money, like the 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 amount of new home supply into the market is is not changing the total supply of homes in the market that much. The number of people right. who own their home, the you know the home ownership ratio is not moving very far, right? So ultimately, I you know even if home prices came down, I don't think you would see that much massive structural change in like the home ownership rate. Yeah, right. But if home prices came down, more people would be able to buy them. Am, am I missing something? Right. But the total number of houses available for sale would, would, would still be the same. And the people, the overwhelming majority of people who buy houses would still right. be homeowners, right? right. The, the number of people who aren't a homeowners who buy a home any given year is always pretty small compared to the number of homeowners who like just like trade one house for another. Yes. Although during 2020 and 2021, I think more first time buyers did come into the market. Yeah, that was that that was or well, that is one of the interesting things that you learn. I spent more time than I care to admit looking at this question of what is the relationship between mortgage rates and house prices? And it's not simple at all. Um, but in general, what you tend to find is that when mortgage rates fall dramatically, that does tend to increase home prices. On the other hand, when mortgage rates rise dramatically, that doesn't tend to <laughs> decrease home prices. You know, they, yeah. they kind of get stuck. 
it's very hard for home prices to come down. We all remember it vividly because we all lived through that, you know, 2007, 2008. And so obviously it's not unprecedented. But remember that the thing that caused that was like millions and millions of subprime borrowers literally just buying houses they could never afford using these like ninja loans and stuff. Um, And a whole bunch of foreclosures and and, um, negative equity and that kind of thing. If you have a normal housing market like we do, where the delinquency and default rates on mortgages is basically zero, it's incredibly rare to see house prices fall particularly fast, even when even when mortgage rates are rising. Yeah, which I think is hard for people to to come to grips with now, because a lot of the coverage I read has echoes of 08 in it when there's talk of you know, home sales falling or home prices dipping. Like there was a chart from Redfin this week that showed homeowners have lost, I don't know, a lot of equity. Well, they've gained, again, yeah, no, the Redfin chart, I wrote about it in my newsletter this week. It shows equity basically going up and to the right, housing wealth going up and to the right, and then a little dip over the past six months. Mostly, mostly in California, it has to be said. If you exclude California, it basically, um, you know, it's almost invisible. But the headline on their report was like, homeowners lose the most equity in their homes since since 08. So you would be like, oh, panic. But really, it's just like, <laughs> compared to what's gone on for the past two years, it's just, it's like a little blip. Yeah, re- really, really, it's just like a, a few towns in California. <laughs> For people who are, you know, taking out bigger mortgages, you can still get pretty attractive rates because the lenders, you know, if you have 10 million in net worth, are still offering incentives to buy down interest rates. And so you can still get a 30-year fixed mortgage for at, you know, 4.6% if you're looking at a jumbo loan. 4.6% is is not what anybody would have considered pretty attractive like a year ago. Like, let's put this in context. (laughs) Yeah, but in, in a 6.5% environment, it is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if, you, if you're if you the kind of person who has a private banking relationship and you can borrow against your stock portfolio and the, and your bank wants to maintain a healthy relationship, and yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I think that, you know, that's a whole other planet from like the normal world of, you know, middle-class home ownership. Yeah, that's a planet I am so curious about. Maybe it's boring to everyone else, but like having your own private banker call you and be like, hey, do you want to refinance? Like I had a a friend of mine, I guess, who has a private banking relationship. And when mortgage rates were very, very low, you know, back in 2020, like her banker called her and was like, I'm applying, I'm putting you through for a refinance. Like he just did it for her. And I remember because I was trying to get through to like JP Morgan and Chase to refinance and I couldn't even reach them. It, it's definitely true that, you know, at some point for, for the very rich, um, your house is a instrument of financial engineering, right? You could just pay cash for your house. You don't need a, mo- a mortgage at all. If you do have a mortgage, what you're doing is you're effectively like leveraging up your assets, right? You're borrowing against your house to buy stock is one way of thinking about it instead of like selling the stock to buy the house, for cash and so a lot of it is just this question of do i expect to make more money on my stock portfolio than i'm paying an interest on my mortgage and when you're offered a mortgage at 
you know, two and a quarter percent or something, the the answer is obviously yes. So you wind up mortgaging your house to buy more stocks. Um, right now, it's an interesting question. You know, and it's 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 a little bit riskier to do that trade. So, you know, I would guess I don't know that a lot of rich people buying houses right now are just paying cash because they're like, why would I borrow? Why would I go into debt to buy this house when I can just, you know, sell these stocks, which is still relatively high, and turn it into property? Right. And for those deals where they say we will finance your refinance in two years or we'll pay for your refinance, I mean, do you guys think that rates will be lower in two years? I kind of don't think so. Yeah, if, if I if I was if I was the rates trader, I might have a view on that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting question, right? Long term rates generally aren't nearly as volatile as they have been over the past year, right? the The way in which mortgage rates spiked from you know two and a half percent to six and a half percent in a matter of weeks is is kind of unprecedented i can't remember that ever happening like short-term rates you can see more volatility but the long-term like 10-year rates doesn't generally move anywhere near that much and there's definitely part of me that says we're going to see some kind of mean reversion right and that those long-term rates are going to come back down mortgage rates are ultimately a function of um where you know 10-year treasuries are plus an interesting spread and that spread has gone up too right the spread between mortgage rates and the 10-year treasury rate is much wider now than it normally Mm -hmm. is so even if um rates in general stay relatively high it is definitely possible that mortgage rates will come down just through that spread compressing So, um, yeah, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about another major macro phenomenon, which is the employment rate among disabled folks. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. Yeah. You are, you are the you are the queen of the macro data this week. I guess so. What's Slow this week. other data set that you've been you've been spelunking? Um, this is the share of Americans with disabilities who are employed, and in 2022, that share rose to 21.3 percent, which is a record high. Um, before the pandemic, it was more in the 19 percent range. So there's this phenomenon during the pandemic where more Americans with disabilities got jobs. And the big picture is that's great news because this is a very, um, this is a segment of the population that faces, you know, 
obviously a lot of difficulties in working because of disabilities, but also this extra layer of bias and discrimination. Employers really don't want to hire people with disabilities and they find all kinds of ways not to hire them. And I did a bunch of reporting on this earlier this year. Um, you know, there are job requirements in in job listings that would discourage people from applying to jobs who have disabilities. And, and maybe those requirements aren't even really real. Like you have to lift 50 pounds, but it's like a listing for a receptionist or something. Um, but during the pandemic, kind of like at least two things are happening. First, more people are going remote. So if you have a disability, it's easier for you to, to work. You don't have to worry about accessibility, anything like that. To go into an office, you can just work from home. So that's one advantage. And the other thing that's more controversial is more Americans identified as having disabilities. Um, and there's some research out there that speculates that this could be because more Americans had long COVID and so identified as having a disability. So it's like this good news, but underneath the good news is kind of a, a little bit of a question mark. I think, you know, the, the long COVID question is really interesting because there are, you know, we don't really have a defined set of symptoms or, or you know, a real um, standardized set of diagnostic criteria for it. So the point at which people qualify for things like disability benefits or in a position to, um, you know, have, have legal standing if an employer is discriminating against them as a disabled worker I think a lot of that stuff is still very gray area. In terms of this data set, this is just people who self-report as being disabled, right, having a disability. Yeah, exactly. This is um, when they do the survey for the jobs report. There's like six questions on the survey that they the BLS uses to identify Americans with disabilities. And some of them are like, do you have trouble seeing or are you blind? Do you have trouble hearing? Or are you deaf? Um, do you, you have difficulty running errands or climbing stairs? Stuff like that. So it is self-reported. Um, I think if you did, you cut the population by like who receives disability benefits, it would be a whole other story. So yeah, if you have long COVID, some of these questions would definitely apply to you. So you see in the data, like hundreds of thousands of more people identifying as having disabilities um, during the pandemic and 2022. So the question is now, I guess, like, is that going to be sustained? I think one of the long lasting legacies of the pandemic is just broadly a greater understanding of and acceptance of um, the fact that both physical and mental problems can happy, happen to any of us. You know, we can wind up getting long COVID, which causes both. Um, and more sort of compassion and understanding. And as you say, a greater realization that work from home can really level the playing field much more than it than, than we used to to see pre-pandemic and so yeah people are like yeah i have long covid i have some kind of disability i am working this is all great but yeah i mean let's put this in perspective here 21 percent compared to the overall um employment to population ratio which is what 65 something like that is you know there's still a long way to go oh yeah and i mean traditionally the unemployment rate uh, for people with a disability is far higher than for people without a disability. So, yeah. So the question here, because if you if you look at your Amazing Pretty chart, there is a quite startling up and to the right spike in this employment to population ratio among disabled people. Um, the question is, is this 
structural or is this cyclical? Is it going to come back down to, is it going to mean revert? Or is this like the beginning of a new glorious age where um, people are happy self-identifying as having disabilities, people are happy working from home, employers are happy for people with disabilities to work for them and to work from home. And now we can expect this up into the right trend to continue. I mean, it's a really good question. The It looks like, I mean, part of the reason, in addition to the long COVID reason and the remote work reason, is that the labor market's really tight. And when the labor market is really tight, it pulls in people who normally have a hard time get getting jobs. So that would include Americans with disabilities, would include, you know, people with, like, who spend time in prison, things like that. Um, and there's not much indication that the labor market is going to get less tight in the coming years. So that's, like score one in the column for this chart to kind of stay up and not go back down. And then on the other side of that is the long COVID question. People start recovering from long COVID. Does that mean this population kind of declines, which is good news also, And but then this number declines too. Yeah, I don't think anybody thinks that we're all going back to 100% in office work either. So if remote is here to stay on some level, Mm-hmm. That has to be an event. Yeah, I think it's going to stay a little high. Yeah. That's good. All right. Let's all um, embrace the way in which the pandemic created a more diverse workforce. We'll be right back after an ad. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, Elizabeth. You got very excited about the new charges that were (laughs) unveiled against Sam Bankman-Fried because now he's not just being accused of fraud. He's also being accused of um, violating political donation laws. And you're like, oh, now I'm interested. Yeah, I'm not sure excited is really the the right word, but he's, uh, (laughs) uh, he's now facing four counts of conspiracy to defraud the Federal Election Commission because... Uh, he used some employees of both, I think, both Alameda and some of the other vehicles that he managed to make donations in, in a way that's um, it's called using a straw donor, where basically you have one person who's or an organization that's funding donations to political candidates or causes, uh, but under somebody else's name so that they can exceed the federally mandated limits for how much you, you can give a candidate. And this is 
very, very straightforwardly illegal. So now he's in trouble for that, in addition to the 458 other things that he's done that are sketchy. Did I read that he had, like, someone, a go-to straw donor for Republican candidates and a go-to straw donor for Democratic candidates? Yeah, that was right. It was Ryan Salame was the Republican one, and Nishad Patel was the Democratic one, I think. But then he also made his own donations. Yeah, I think he's he's more widely seen as a, as a kind of Democratic activist, just because most people who are in the, the crypto world tend to skew Republican. Uh, and, and so he was unusual in that respect. But he was giving money to Democrats and Republicans and uh, lobbying both sides. No one knew about the Republicans, right? Like before all of the before everything blew up. Um, he was known as a major Democratic donor. He was on the record saying he wanted to spend a billion dollars in the next general election supporting Democrats. He was, you know, uh, closely associated with, I think both his brother and his mother were like, had political action committees and stuff that were supporting Democrats. Like he was a known lefty. Um, And then after everything blew up, he gave this interview where he was like, well, actually I was donating to Republicans as well. I just kept it very quiet. And now it's, you know, this is that side of things is coming out. Um, and the real question I have for you is like, if he's doing very, very quiet donations to Republicans via straw men, how does that help him? Like, do the Republicans even know that it's coming from him? Like, oh, yeah, like, they know. The, the, whole, the whole point of giving money to Republicans <laughs> is that, like, they'll feel beholden to you somehow. Yeah, no, they know. I, I think when, when people engage in this, that's, that's sort of the point. They, they know that they're funneling more money than they're allowed to to the candidate, and the candidate is, is aware of it. I think most of the candidates that I've worked with are aware, you know, even if they get, you know, somebody who hits the federal limit, uh, especially in down-ballot races, uh, they're familiar with who those people are because, for the most part, those checks are not coming over the transom. You know, there's a concerted effort to get large donors to donate, and so their fundraising people absolutely knew that was happening. So is is it basically the case that there's like two types of members of Congress, the ones who will quietly be happy when someone gives more than they're allowed to and the ones that will immediately report that person to the FEC? Yeah, well, theoretically, they're, they're supposed to immediately report that person to the FEC or they're in trouble too. I'm sure there, there are people who get away with it, but uh, if you get caught, you're, you're in big trouble. It's not a minor thing. And, you know, in theory, he was doing all this to influence uh, the way in which the crypto industry is regulated. But you can go through normal lobbying channels and do that. This was, a, you know, a very risky strategy on his part. Well, I mean, you can't. I think I think the lesson of um, crypto lobbying is that we've seen a huge amount of it, not just from FTX, but also from, you know, Coinbase and everyone else. And it has had no visible result in terms of legislation making it easier for crypto anything to do anything. And in fact, right now, of course, in the wake of the FTX collapse, there's just a massive backlash and and both regulators and Congress have no particular desire to um, to listen to crypto lobbyists at all. Um, it, but yeah, I think you're right that he was just trying every possible avenue he could to try and influence Congress to make it easier for him to 
do business in the United States. Um, and then it turned out that he was, per the complaint, defrauding his own customers from 2019 onwards. Um, and it just, and I think that, you know, I think in a weird way, it, it reflects well on Congress that despite these enormous sums being spent on lobbying and donations and everything, Congress never actually really got close to passing the kind of laws that the crypto industry wanted them to pass. Well, also, the, the kind of laws that they wanted were so sort of out there that I, I think, you know, he had two meetings with Gary Gensler and one to talk about a new structure that he wanted to, you know, implement for his primary exchange. And Gensler told him, you know, you're that you wouldn't make it past slide two without this being knocked down. You know, I, I think they, they weren't asking for things that were sort of reasonable or incremental. So, I, you know, I, I agree with you that the, the lobbying didn't really yield anything for the crypto industry. But I, I think that's more a function of Congress being very slow and people still not understanding crypto. And now, thanks to the FTX collapse, there's more skepticism and it's just going to take longer. Yeah, I mean... On the one hand, you could say the lobbying didn't work because no laws were passed. On the other hand, you could say the lobbying did work because no laws were passed, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. a lot of these companies got to just do whatever for a long time. Um, and the reason that the SEC is cracking down now is because because of the FTX collapse, because so many things went wrong, they're like, well, now we should step in. You know, the house is on fire. We should we should put it out. Right, but but the the reason the FT the reason the SEC is stepping in now is because you know there were a lot of illegal things going on that were illegal all along, and you didn't need laws to be passed for these things to be illegal. Yeah, yeah. And and so like you, I don't think we needed any laws to be passed saying like crypto is illegal because most of it was illegal all along under the Howey test. Um, but also. Most of it wasn't in the United States, right? Even FTX was basically based in the Bahamas. Um, their U.S. subsidiary was tiny. You know, I think the the Congress, if anything, was erring on the side of being too solicitous of the crypto industry. You know, we had people like Kirsten Gillibrand coming out and saying, "Oh yeah, we need to make things clear that you know this and that and the other is all legal and should be." lightly regulated because crypto is the future and we need to allow innovation otherwise all of the innovation is going to happen somewhere else and all of those kind of arguments that got trotted out pre-fdx um but yeah like as you say congress moves slowly no one seemed very excited about making it ha making these kind of radical reforms to the financial regulatory superstructure of america happen overnight and so they didn't and and that in hindsight turns out to have been a good thing and the vast majority of americans were basically unscathed by the crypto winter and the crypto collapse i mean it does seem like the regulators could have done more 100 to rein in a yes. lot of these rogue yes. businesses yes. um Gemini Earn or whatever other ones, BlockFi, yeah. like they took their time raining back things that were clearly bad and illegal and people did yeah. lose money. And it almost seemed like no one wanted to stop the party while it was happening. Then once, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried kind of ended everything, they were like, well, now, now we can step in. Because that's just sort of like a very, that's kind of the way it always goes. We were just talking about housing. It's kind of the same thing. Like, the regulations all came after the party ended and everyone lost all their money and stuff. And they work now. Yeah. 
I mean, we do need to make the distinction, right, between legislators and regulators. The, the you know, legislators did nothing and that was fine because the only thing they could have done was really make it easier for the crypto industry rather than make it harder because as we have discovered, everything they were doing was already illegal. Mm. Um, regulators, um, yeah, they saw, um, they had their bosses who are, is Congress you know, surprisingly embraced this idea that crypto was a form of positive financial innovation, um, yeah, especially on the Republican mm -hmm. side of things, which, interestingly enough. They were like, yeah, this is broadly a good thing. And who, how dare you try and crack down on the most innovative thing to happen to money in a thousand years or whatever the argument was. And so politically, I think it was hard for the regulators to be too aggressive. Now, politically, obviously, it's much easier. So that's what they're doing. Yeah, I think also there's an incentive uh, for understaffed agencies to only enforce things when there's a clear-cut case. You know, it's, it's sort of why the SEC likes to prosecute insider trading, because it's an easier thing to explain to the public and to taxpayers than a lot of other types of financial crime. So just to back up these new charges against SBF, what, what does this mean for his case? Does it just mean he's going to have a harder time? We should say he pled not guilty to the old charges. We, do we know how he's pled to the new charges? Like what's going to mean for his case? Yeah, he, he's going to fight the charges. There's going to be a there's going to be a big trial. Uh, it's going to take a long time. There's going to be a lot of press. It's all going to happen right here in the Southern District of New York. And I'm just going to come out and say that, you know, all signs point to many, many guilty verdicts. You know, it, it seems like completely just beyond um, the realm of possibility that he will be found not guilty on all counts. There are so many different counts here. And everyone who worked with him is a, cooper is a cooperating witness against him <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Another reminder that your friends from work are not your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're doing crime. Or your polycule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even your polycule is not really your friend. <laughs> I read that Sam Bankman-Fried's, um, like, his number two guy, they, like, met in math camp in, in high school. <laughs> and I just, that's just so nerdy. I couldn't believe it. And then they lost touch but then met up again at MIT, like. I was just thinking, like, what went wrong, fellas? This is the American dream. Math camp to MIT. Like, what are you doing? Why did you go to crime? Well, they all made billions. Like, you know. <laughs> and they're effective altruists. Oh, right. Um, so, Elizabeth, why wouldn't he just do it the normal way and pay lobbyists to lobby for him and not do it the illegal way and do these, like, shadow donations and whatnot? I don't understand what the advantage is. Yeah, well, they were they were paying lobbyists. The, I, I think the it's just a, of a piece with his overall hubris. You know, you could ask the same question about the other shenanigans that he's been involved in that that are pretty straightforward bad shit. So I, I think he just thought he could get away with it all, or you know, he had this sort of mentality that once you reach a certain level of success and wealth, that all these things just don't apply to you. That you know you're you're operating in a different level, so which is kind of true, right? It's it's hard to think of very many donors who've been prosecuted for violating 
FEC rules, like, especially with the explosion of super PACs and whatnot. It's so easy to get around those rules. Like you really need to be particularly just lazy to wind up violating these things. Or, like, or, come on, the arrogant. laws are there. You can follow the laws very easily. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble for all this had he not defrauded all his customers and stolen funds. Right. I think I think that's exactly right. You what happens is that you wind up getting in trouble for one thing and then yeah. they pile on a bunch of FEC violations for shits and giggles. Right. That's what I was saying about that Trump case where um he was like they were paying people and with cars and apartments and stuff. It seems like beside the point to everything else that went on with Trump, but it's like an easy case to prosecute. Um, let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Uh-huh. What is it? 16. Okay. Gallons. 16 gallons. That is annual. Is this a milk number? Yes. It is the milk. <laughs> real Dairy milk. That's annual dairy milk consumption per capita in 2021. 16 gallons. Back in 1980, the number was like closer to 30. And the reason this is newsy is because the FDA is now proposing to allow companies to use the word milk to describe oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, all the other kinds of milk. Which, of course, they have been doing for years, right? The the horse has bolted from that particular stable. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bit retroactively, oh, yeah, this thing you've been doing for years is fine. But I'm just going to come out and say that the per capita consumption of nut milks and oat milk and that kind of stuff is is going to be a is still a, a sort of a fraction of a gallon it's not it's not like we are now that difference between 31 gallons and 16 gallons is like is now in almond milk it's yeah, not it's just yeah. we're drinking less milk yeah or i don't know what right. people are drinking instead of milk i mean felix is is you're drinking wine instead of milk i'm assuming <laughs> exactly <laughs> i'm drinking wine in a cereal <laughs> every morning wine instead of milk <laughs> I, I go into I go into my local coffee shop and I'm like, can you make me a latte with like a, a muscadet? Um, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, yeah, my number is 746, and it's uh, 746 dollars, and that's the average markup on an auto loan that you get if you're a black customer, versus 349 dollars if you're not a black customer. So the easy way to sort of eliminate this racial discrimination would be to end markups on auto loans that are at the discretion of the dealer, uh, but we, we're not doing that right now. So there's a persistent discrimination problem. So wait, explain explain this markup thing. I don't understand it. So if if you buy a car and you receive financing on it, you generally get an overall rate that's the sort of all-in rate but you don't necessarily have transparency into how much of that is coming from the lender and how much of it is discretionary markup from the dealer. So, And because it's legal for the dealer to mark up to a certain level um, at their discretion, you know, the, the, the question is, you know, why do some people get markups, other people don't? Uh, and in this case, it appears that across the board, dealers are discriminating against black buyers, even when you control for other factors. So as I understand it, auto loans are a profit center for dealers. Like the last time I bought a car, they were like, and then we're going to have to go through this whole financing palaver. And I was like, 
actually, it's not a very expensive car. I can pay for it in cash. And and they said, if you pay for it in cash, we're going to have to charge you much more because we make money by offering you loans. And so just apply for the loan, get the loan, and then pay it off in six months' time, and then everyone's going to be happy. But you need to get the loan because that's going to make your car cheaper. But I guess what you're saying is that, like, the reason they could reduce the price of the car was because they're making money on that loan that like you know the the lender is basically giving them a kickback and you're saying that they take more of a kickback on loans to black folks than they do from anyone else is that basically it no they they can outside of the loan they can mark up the overall cost of the financing um so even apart from the lender's terms like a fee or something like fees yeah so they add extra fees to black buyers versus white buyers? Yep. You're 20% more likely to get um, to receive a markup if you're a black buyer than if you're not a black buyer. So there's just like a random extra cost? Yeah. Yeah, it's because they don't have, there's usually not a, there's not really a standard criteria for determining markup. So it's, it's the, the dealer sticking a finger in the air and making a judgment about the customer. Wow. Like car car financing is one of two areas of finance that every time I look at it my brain melts and I don't and I do not understand. The other one is annuities. There are t- there, there are these two parts of finance where I'm like I really need to get my brain around how this works and I look at car loans and I'm like I do not understand and car leases especially and I'm like I do not understand how car leases work. They are so opaque. And then the other one is annuities. And ev- like the proportion of American households who buy cars is, you know, it's got to be close to 100%. It's like everyone does it, um, you know, if they don't live in New York City. And it's just, it's so opaque and it's so hard to understand. And yeah, a bit, a lot more just basic sort of templates issued by the CFPB that have to make it very clear how everything works and don't allow all of these kind of hidden shenanigans would be great. And I don't understand why we don't have that. Car lobbyist. <laughs> um, oh, I, I should have a number two. I have a number. Ha, this is a good one. My number is 1,545. Um, and this is a platinum coin number. Uh, this has got nothing to do with the debt ceiling, though. Um, this is the new platinum coin that is being issued by the U.S. Mint to commemorate the First Amendment. And apparently the First Amendment has something to do with acorns. So it has a bunch of acorns on the coin. Um, if either of you can tell me what the connection is between acorns and the First Amendment, um tell me otherwise we will leave it to our good listeners to explain what the connection is and this is a hundred dollar coin as in it's uh you know the uh it's legal tender in the united states and you can spend it to buy a hundred worth hundred dollars worth of stuff but no one would ever do that because the cost of the coin is one thousand five hundred and forty five dollars what which is not which is not only more than a hundred dollars but it's also more than like nine hundred and fifty dollars which is the cost of an ounce of platinum that this 
coin has an ounce of platinum in it. So, you know, people people are buying it for the precious metal value, not for the coin value. How many are they making? As many as there's demand for. Huh. Okay. But the secondary market, like if you want, like once they start getting traded, it's going to be traded for less than the um, brand new price. People aren't going to buy an ounce of platinum for $1,545 when they can buy like a platinum bar for like $950 with the same amount of platinum in it. And I don't think the numismatic value of having a coin with acorns on it is (laughs) worth, you know, more than $500. So it'll be interesting to me to see how many of these coins the mint actually sells because they seem to be pricing them pretty aggressively. Yeah, that's so weird. Also, by the way, Another thing which I want to ask Slate Money listeners, please write in slatemoney at slate.com. Why is platinum so much cheaper than gold right now? Like historically, platinum has always been more expensive than gold. And, you know, and if you look at like the American Express ladder of cards, you know, it starts at green and it goes up to silver and then goes up to gold and then it like platinum is the top. And the reason platinum is the top is because everyone understands that platinum is a more precious metal than gold. But platinum has been much cheaper than gold for some years now and the difference between them is now enormous. Um, you know, platinum is as I say, it's less than a thousand dollars an ounce. Gold is what, fourteen fifty, something like that? So yeah, what's going on there? Someone who understands the dynamics of precious metals please write in and explain what's happening in the precious metal market because i would love to know um so yeah we are going to talk about aj banga the new president of the world bank in slate plus it happened very quickly it's been announced um he hasn't officially been voted on but he's going to be the new president um and other than that yeah thanks for listening thanks to anna phillips for producing And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.